All right, chapter 21, the last week of Jesus. is Matthew's devoted uh, about a fourth or a third of uh, his book to the last week of Jesus. Now, when they, that's Jesus and the disciples, drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two uh, of his disciples, saying to them, go into the village in front of you. Uh, if you haven't been with us before, we're going to do a big Bible study together. We're going to do this verse by verse. So here's how uh, this will work. First thing, verse one. Jesus is on his way with his disciples, and you can see where they're going. They're ultimately headed to Jerusalem, and we'll find out why as the book goes on. What you may not be aware is they're uh, aware of, they're on this road that is a Roman's road. It's the, the famous saying, all roads lead to Rome. This is a road that's been built by Rome. So it's a pretty secure road for the most part. It goes from Jericho to Jerusalem. It's about 17 miles. I bring this up because it's about a 3,000 foot incline as you walk. It's a walking uphill. And as you get to Bethphage, which just in Greek means house of unripened figs. So these figs, for, for some reason, never ripen. It's like at some point, stop growing them there, right? So house of unripened figs. They get there, and you're about 300 feet above the temple, which provides this great um, kind of panoramic view of, of uh, what, what you want to see there. But on your way, you're looking down onto towns. And so just kind of if you're somebody who needs a visual, they see this town from afar. They can see it. It's very clear to see it. And as they're looking at this town, Jesus sends two of his disciples Matthew doesn't want to tell us who, sends these two disciples, hey, go to this town, right? So they end up going to this town. Why? Why did they need to go to this village? Immediately, you will find a donkey tied in a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This, of course, feels very like, well, anybody can say the Lord needs that. Like, can I borrow $100? Why? Because Jesus needs it. That's not what's happening. In John chapter 12, it's actually set up um, arrangements by Jesus. So we're kind of given some context here. Jesus set all this up intentionally to fulfill some prophecy, as we'll see. So uh, they, they sent it out. What I want you to do right now, though, is what they're going to go, and they're going to go into this village, and they're going to find this donkey and this colt tied next to it. Jot your eyes down real quickly to verse 5, if you could. We're going to break down 5 in a second. But notice in the prophecy that Jesus is fulfilling here, that Matthew says Jesus is fulfilling here, it uses the language of beast of burden. I think this is important, or at least D.A. Carson kind of brings out this nuance, which I think is really beautiful. Beast of burden is a term that is used for, uh, if you don't know this, donkeys are the most mules, they're the, the most uh, sure-footed animal in the world, right? Meaning sure-footed, you don't see, you're not going to see a mule slip, they're very sure-footed. And so they were ridden by, historically known, this is all what D.A. Carson brought out in his commentary, for rulers to ride them in times of peace. Because you think in times of war, you're going to ride a horse, but in times of peace, we don't need to bring the horses out. We're going to ride these bursts of uh, uh, beasts of burdens. And he, he brings this out as this is about to be fulfilled because he says it's very possible that Jesus is communicating something as he rides in on this donkey that ultimately I'm bringing peace to the city. All right. Keep that kind of bracketed in your mind as we go on. It says this, verse four, this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet saying, and here's the prophecy, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey and a colt, the fowl, uh, the, the fowl of a beast of burden. Uh, this is two kind of Old Testament uh, things, manuscripts we're going to either quote Isaiah 62, 11 for the first part, but for the most part, if you look at the bottom of your Bible, you're going to see a footnote. It's going to say Zechariah chapter nine, verse nine, and that's the, the main part that it's coming from. Here's what's kind of curious about this, all right? If we're going to study the Bible, let's put our knowledge hats on for a second and dive in. Um, Matthew, of all four gospel writers, has the greatest mastery of Hebrew. He is a Jew writing to Jews. He's not going to make mistakes with a lot of this. Um, and he has been quoting the Old Testament 
more than Mark, John, and Luke combined in the other Gospels. He quotes the Old Testament a ton because he's a Jew writing to Jews and they know this. Well, they're going to know Zechariah 9.9, but he misquotes it. And he doesn't change it, but he leaves a part out. What we read in Zechariah 9.9 is this, Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey. But what we just read in Matthew, Matthew says, behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey. It totally eliminates the part. Let me read Zechariah 9, 9 again. Uh, it says, behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he. It removes that part. Now, one thought is that could just be assumed that the Messiah is coming. Or two, if we were to take this a step further, and I think there's a, a good reason to believe this, it is not just that, that it's assumed, it's trying to emphasize something else. It's emphasizing the humble part of this Messiah coming. Now, if you were with us last week, you remember why that matters, but let's look forward and see why it matters now. If you are a first century Palestinian Jew, you're not gonna miss, miss, uh, miss this at all, but we are because we're in 2023 in the West. If you are thinking the Messiah is coming, here's what you know. For hundreds of years, you've either been under Babylon, you've been under Persia, you've been under the Greeks, but right now you're under the Romans. And the promise is from the Old Testament that the Messiah, whoever this captor is, is going to free you from this captor. He's going to bring salvation. And what's missed in all four Gospels is, as we're seeing, they're going to shout Hosanna, but they miss something. And what they miss is they're expecting this Messiah to come on the scene and save them from Rome. They expect him to ride in on a horse because it's almost like uh, they're expecting some like John Wick Messiah. I, and I, I use this because I've never seen the John Wick movies. This is totally a side note, but I share it with first, so I might as well give it to you. I did a, a wedding uh, in Maryland a couple weeks ago, and I keep hearing about this John Wick guy. So they were showing movies, and John Wick 4 was on there, right? So I was like, I don't know. Everyone keeps talking about it. So I watched John Wick 4. First of all, it made zero sense. I apparently need to watch the first three because he gets hit by like 25 cars uh, he shot, I'm not exaggerating, at least a thousand times he shot. And he's just like constantly, at one point he falls from a five-story building, hits a light, hits the ground, and Keanu Reeves gets up and goes, ugh, right? And you're like, no, dude, you would be dead. You, so unless in the first three, they give him like some kind of everlasting potion, the movie doesn't make sense at all. And so this John Wick character is like, he's the real deal. They're expecting that kind of like Messiah, this warrior type Messiah. But instead they get, here's the emphasis, a humble Messiah, not riding on a horse, but riding on a donkey. There's a juxtaposition here that Matthew is painting. He didn't come to conquer Rome. He came to conquer sin. That's what he came to do. And it's hard for us to see that. Matter of fact, let's read what takes place. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colts and put on them their cloaks and, sat on them, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road and others cut branches from trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds uh, that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered in Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, who is this? And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. So this is the classic Palm Sunday's text that Palm Sunday text that we get. Um, people are laying down their coats. Uh, you know, they're taking off their tunics or put it on so Jesus can ride as he enters in. They're waving these palm branches, all this to fulfill a lot of prophecies. You may not be aware that word Hosanna, meaning save, uh, God saves, comes from two accounts in Second uh, uh, Samuel chapter two, verse 14 and Second Kings uh, chapter six. You may not know this, but Hosanna, the word Hosanna is actually transliterated. If we translate 
word from one language to another, we have to create a new word. But Hosanna is the same similar word that we get in uh, Hebrew. So it's transliterated. And it's just like, God is going to save. That's what they're expecting, right? That's what we saw. Uh, uh, to what they're uh, ex- expecting. What I want to point out, though, is when we see this whole encounter go down, Hosanna in the highest, praise him. The city stirred up. And a lot of people don't know what's going on. And it causes us to stop and go, what exactly is going on? Why for 2,000 years has the church been celebrating Easter, have been celebrating Trinity Sunday, they've been celebrating uh, uh, Christmas and Advent and Lent and Palm Sunday? Why is Palm Sunday such a big deal every single time? Well, there's two things going on. Number one, Jonathan Edwards, uh, if you don't know who he is, a huge figure within uh, church history, he contends the reason we have this is Jesus, and I quote, is coming to wage war against the religious establishment at the time. Okay? And it's, it's hard to see here in Matthew because we keep being inundated with how big of a deal Jesus is. But in uh, Mark in particular, it's kind of been masked. Mark masks Jesus's messianess uh, and, and, and he's making it hidden and eventually it's revealed in the triumphal entry. Oh, no, no, I am the Messiah. It hasn't been my time, but I'm telling you, I am the Messiah. He's gonna double down on that here in a second. And I think this is the purpose. It just in a question that we can ask ourselves in general is, why is it such a big deal? Because Jesus is establishing his Messiahship. Now, whether or not Jonathan Edwards is right, that means going uh, to wage war against a religious establishment, I don't know, but there might be some reasons to, uh, to believe that's the case. So let's keep reading. We would think that the Texans there, and that's where uh, we had our scripture reading end, Uh, for Glinda to be able to read, but we're actually going to keep going, okay? Because I want you to notice what he does next. From there, as he enters into this space, Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple, and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those uh, who sold pigeons. He said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. That comes from Isaiah 56 and Jeremiah uh, chapter 11. Uh, now, a lot of you guys are you know, familiar with this, VBS and Juanas, you're aware of the classic scene, Jesus' righteous indignation flipping over tables. What you may not be aware of, it comes on the heels in the book of Matthew on the triumphal entry. Now, this matters. Let me paint the picture of what's going on here because the best way I can um, kind of lay out why Jesus is so upset is honestly a movie theater, and this might not work at all, but it's how I imagine it. When you go to the movies, you pay your you know, $25 for a ticket, and you're going to go in, and ideally, you'd bring in food. Now, let's just all agree. There's no reason you cannot bring in your own food. Zero reason that you, you're like, well, you might make a mess. Have you ever seen a movie theater when the movie's done? Everybody's making a mess. There's zero reason. But when you get in, you pay for a ticket, you're like, fine, I can't bring food in. Well, we sneak it in. I think we all agree to that. Okay? You, bring, you, you, you can't get food. Fine, that's fine. I'll get popcorn here. I'll get popcorn here. So you go up and they're like, well, that's $17. And I'm like, oh, I'm sorry. I, maybe I wasn't clear. I, I don't want a truckload of popcorn. I just want a little thing of popcorn. No, that's our small. It's $25 for the medium and $58 for the large. The good, the good news is you get a free refill at $58, okay? Right? But, but you're stuck. You're stuck in that moment because you can't bring in your own food. You have to buy their food. And so now they have a monopoly on food. They could charge you whatever they want or you can go without food. That's what's happening in the temple. They're finding re- reasons. These um, religious zealots are finding reasons why that doesn't work. But you can go and buy a pigeon, a dove, a sacrifice in the temple. And there's a markup. So now the poor are struggling with this. Jesus sees this and he's upset, right? He flips over. We always see this him flipping over the tables. He flips over the chairs. It's not okay because if we've learned anything in, in human existence, there is money to be made in religion and Christianity has not been exempt of that, have we? We've seen the prosperity gospel, ravish countries. So there's, there's money to be made in religion and that's exactly what these religious leaders are doing. They are controlling people's relationship with God and how close they can be to God and they're, they're making a dollar off of it. 
Now, from there, and that maybe might be a reason that Jonathan Edwards might be right. I'm not sure, but check this out. In verse 14, at the same time, though, the blind uh, and the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, do you hear what they are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes, have you never read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babes, you have prepared praise. That comes from Psalm chapter eight. And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. In my opinion, this is one of the greatest declarations we can get from Jesus on his deity. You hear a lot, Jesus never said he is God. That may be true, but there's reasons he did it. And we constantly get these arrows pointing to the fact that he's God. And this is one of them. It's not that he just stops these people, these blind and these lame, praising. And these people saying that uh, Hosanna, which in Psalm 8 is a clear reference to God. Like, God save us. This is clear reference to him. Uh, but he ends up quoting this, that out of their mouths, out of the mouths of babes, there's, there, uh, there's found from God a praise. So I think Jesus is going, no, no, you're missing it. It's not only am I going to say that they shouldn't do it. I'm going to argue that they should be doing this. What they're doing is right. Now, this creates a little bit of a uh, dichotomy for us, doesn't it? Because on one hand, the religious leaders are being turned upside down. On the other hand, those who are in need are being lifted up. Now, this is more than just the upside down kingdom. It causes a moment for us to just resonate and go, there is something happening. If the Messiahship and why we celebrate every year Palm Sunday, this is the moment Jesus has established this. And if Jonathan Edwards is right, he's going to war against the religious establishment. Let's just call it what it is and move away from the text for a second. It upsets some of you in the room that here is a Messiah who has come to bring salvation, not based on money, not based on your own doing, not based on what you want. And that gets everybody in the room that's a religious folk really upset because you don't get God in your back pocket. When you do the right thing, God owes you something. That is not what Jesus has come to do. He has come humbly. He has come to offer a gift according to Ephesians 2 that is free, not something you can work for. And so he has done something pretty amazing in the triumphal trees. We step back, we go, that's awesome. Now, that's our text, but we're not done. I want to go to another text, and we normally wouldn't do this, but um, there's actually one other triumphal entry that is mentioned uh, in the New Testament, only one other time, and it's actually mentions with us being part of it, okay? Three years ago as a church, we went through the book of 2 Corinthians, and when we got to chapter 2, Paul, who's writing 2 Corinthians, talks about a triumphal procession, a different triumphal procession that we're part of. So you can turn there. If not, it's on the screen. Let me read to you what he says in verse four. So this is a different book, different time. Paul's writing to a different church here. All this stuff that, you know, different kind of idea, different context. He says this in chapter two, verse four, but thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance of, from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. So let's just look at this briefly. I promise this will make sense here in a second. In verse, verse 14, it says, But thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. Suddenly, it's a different image. There, this is an image of a parade. As a matter of fact, leads us, let's see how many words that is, leads us in triumphal procession. Uh, five words there, we just read in English, is one Greek word, one Greek word. And when you hear this Greek word, specifically as a Roman, you know exactly what that Greek word means. In the same way, if I was to say date night, you know, like maybe we get dressed up, we go out to see a movie, we go to dinner. If you're married, you know what happens, okay, right? If you're not, it should not happen, okay? But you get the idea, right? You think something when you hear the term date 
date night. You hear that term, a road trip. Those two words put together this connotation and things go through your mind. When you hear this one Greek word leads us in triumphal procession, I know we're not thinking anything, but they're thinking something. They're thinking this long parade. Somewhere along the line, a Roman general conquered at least 5,000 enemies. He's bringing them into our city in a parade. He got more Roman territory. First, we got the trumpeteers. Then we got the people shouting. Then we got musicians. In the middle of this parade, you got generals on one side and soldiers on the other. And Right in the middle are all the captives. Some of their arms have been chopped off. Their tongues have been ripped out. They have uh, recognized in this moment, your king is better than my king. And at the end of this parade, you're here, triumph, triumph, triumph. That's what this word means. And so Jesus is saying, this is curious, he's saying he leads us in triumphal procession. He's the general that has conquered. And I said this three years ago, but this is a double entendre. On one side, according to Colossians 2, he has beat the principalities of the air and caused them to submit. But in the other side, and this is tricky, we're the captives. He's leading us in triumphal procession. We are the captive. Think of Paul, his stubborn heart being taken over by Christ. But this is curious. Now, now look at the rest of the text. You're going to see this. To some people, that's an aroma of death. Christ has called us, like he's going to tell us in chapter four, what's he saying in chapter four? It's beautiful. Like men sentenced to death because we have become a spectacle to the world. As believers, Jesus is leading us as a spectacle for God, before men and women, before our society. And as we go out, the aroma of Christ leading us is, for some, it's, it's like, man, like for, for your friend or your neighbor, or your classmate who, who is, uh, wants nothing to do with Jesus, they see what you're doing and go, man, that feels like slavery. All you do is try to fight your sin. And I go, yeah, but it's actually freedom, right? And I know you think that makes me like depressed or you like, you hate yourself. No, 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 actually in it, I find peace. Like there's a difference. To them, it smells like death. But to us, it smells like life. And this is where we gotta be honest with one another. Because if that's the case, to everybody in the room, as Jesus comes in his triumphal entry, the fact that Jesus is overturning your metaphorical means of earning grace, this whole thing smells like death to you. It smells like suddenly, wait a minute, it's just a gift. I don't think you understand like what I need to do and how bad I am. Yeah, I got news, you don't have any control. Now, that's why it smells death to them, but that causes me, I'm just telling you because I know who I am, that causes me to go, that smells like life. I want that. That is good, good news. I want to hear more about that truth. I want to hear more about that gospel. And it's not an accident when he says, and he threw us, he spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For uh, We are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved, among those who are perishing, to the one a fragrance of death to death, and to the other, others a fragrance from life to life. This is what's happening, that right now we currently are in a triumphal procession with Jesus, and we are, though slaves, we are free, though we are um, burdened with uh, waging war with our sin, we have peace. It's all happening simultaneously. Now, that being said, um, there's a trick when we teach a text, and I can't speak for all pastors, but when you go to a text of a triumphal entry, and what I'm trying to express right now, the freedom that's found in Jesus announcing that he is a good Messiah that has come, it's really hard to hit the tone Okay, we've talked about this before. There's two things going on when we address every single Sunday. You want to read the text, what's called exegesis. We're breaking down the text. That's what we've done for the last 25, 30 minutes. As we go through that, that's important we do. That's the text, right? We see the context, all that. But there's this other side that's the tone. And and we saw this right before we went into this summer. One of the struggles was when Jesus tells uh, people that it's better to be drowned uh, than to mislead children. 
I struggled with expressing the tone. Some of you guys said it felt like it was like fear-mongering, but I, was, I, I literally explained what happened. I don't know if you remember this. I explained what happened when you drown. Because I, I, I think the tone of the text, Jesus is not messing around. Don't mislead children. And so there's a tone to that text. Well, the tone to this text is excitement. And so I get here and I go, you guys, let the religious folk and people who think they can earn Jesus and, and it's a smell of death, let them mourn. That's fine. But we're over here rejoicing. It's exciting. And so I want to express it. And you're like, no, that's cool, man. No, it's not cool, man. This is amazing. This is amazing. And I struggle with expressing that tone. And so I need to press into my charismatic roots just a little bit, Reformed community, okay? So here's, here's uh, what I have found helpful. I'd say probably 20 years ago, uh, Steve Harvey, uh, who's one of the original kings of comedy, he was invited to a church that was... Um, uh, this all-black church that he was invited to to uh, essentially do this bit, and I found it hilarious, but I'm not going to get into it right now. But I, I remember someone showing me this, and he said, at the end of his bit, he said, if I had the opportunity to introduce who was coming after me onto the stage, here's how I would do it. And I remember watching that and being in awe of going, like, getting goosebumps and going, that's it, like, that's amazing. That, that's... And so if there was some kind of crazy turn of events that... Uh, as we hit the book of Revelation chapter 19, the triumphal entry, Jesus starts his messianic, I'm on the scene, one day it's going to be consummated, right? So we have the birth, death, uh, we, we have the birth, uh, res- uh, no, no, the um, triumphal entry, the uh, death, his life, the resurrection, and one day he's going to return in the parousia, the second coming. If somehow in a turn of events, God had said, I don't want the trumpets from the four winds of the earth, Sean, I want you to introduce Jesus, Okay. Now, I'm not saying this is even biblical, what I'm about to do, okay? <laughs> what I am saying is, if I had the opportunity, this is how I would do it. This is, this is how God has made me, and maybe you might have it somewhere different, but if I had the opportunity of everything that God has done in my life, and I was going to, now it's not just the triumphal entry, but the return of Jesus Christ, and, and leveraging everything we've done in Matthew, this is how I would do it. This is how I would do it. You may not like it, but this is how I would do it. Ladies and gentlemen, of every human that has ever walked this earth, there is no one greater that I can introduce to you. His story deserves more psalms than David could give and more money than Solomon could give. Father Abraham may have had many children, but Abraham belongs to this man. Moses was faithful in God's house, but this man built the house. Moses gave us the law, but this man fulfilled it. He was born of a virgin before green screens and editing could ever accuse him of faking it. The rich man north of rich men may have power, but none of them have the wisest men of the earth bowing down and worshiping at his birth. He was so powerful at birth, the greatest ruler in all of the known world feared this man. When he was baptized, the very sky couldn't contain itself and split open. When he went toe-to-toe to temptation with the devil, he showed Money Mayweather who the true TBE is. He took 12 nobodies and made them household names across the world. People still today talk about a sermon he gave 2,000 years ago on a mountain and weep over it. Leper skin is made well because his was ripped apart. He restored the sight of the blind so they could see more than just what was in front of them. He restored the sound waves to the deaf so that they could hear the sound of the gospel. The great physician not only healed the physically sick but made them spiritually well. He who... Uh, found someone who could not walk, gave them strength in their legs, looked at the Pharisees and said, explain that one. He fed 5,000, and just in case we thought he might have gone David Blaine on the situation, he did it again to 4,000 with a few uh, loaves and fish. 
The very density of water changes at his presence. When his disciples were scared in the middle of the worst monsoon we can imagine, he woke up from a nap and said, shut it, and went back to sleep. (laughs) Satan's very minions, his soldiers, are so afraid of him. In the text that we read, they beg him. Believe me when I say this, Chuck Norris should be nervous. John Cena should be nervous. LeBron and Mahomes should be nervous. He is returning now with daggers coming out of his mouth and blood running in the streets. All the justice that you and I have been waiting for, he will now bring. And if that resume was not big enough to praise him, with all of his power, he didn't just tell us we're going to be persecuted, he let us in it. He offered his heavy, bur- his heavy, uh, our offer to give us our heavy, his light yoke and his heavy burden. It's time for you to see that the moments that you felt like you were alone in your anxiety and your depression, your loss of child, your loss of life, your, your burdens at job and your heartbreak, he was with you. Even when you didn't want him to be with you, he was with you. When you didn't know he was with you, he was with you. It's time for you to see every human that has ever lived go Tebow. It's time for you to see it's been his show and we've been merely supporting actors. It's time for death to be reversed, earth to be restored. It's time for time itself to be made right. Brothers and sisters, finally, we have someone over us who loves us more than ourselves, our long-awaited king, our true high priest, the very love of our soul. Ladies and gentlemen, I give to you our king and master, Jesus Christ. How dope would it be if Jesus came right there? Be like, yes. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you so much for who you are. Thank you for the triumphal entry, Holy Spirit, the narrative that you've inspired for us to study as saints. We see now the beauty, Jesus, of who you are, even if it's just for a moment as we walk out, go about our week, we might forget the majesty in which you bring to the table, but I pray that we would see you, a lowly king, riding in on a donkey. You could... You could have created an animal to ride in on. You, you could have uh, brought your legion of angels to, to, to be with you. But no, you took this lowly road. And yet one day you will return on a white horse. And it's, uh, it's going to be a big deal. I pray that we would meditate on that often, that we'd be mindful of the fact that Jesus, it is your story and we're so grateful to be part of it. We love you. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.